This whole section of the book of Hebrews is all about what theologians call the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. What is remarkable about the obedience of Jesus Christ is that at the same time that Jesus obeyed perfectly, at the same time that Jesus lived a perfect life, there's also that aspect of the, of the life of Christ that is vicarious. That means that Jesus, what He did, He did in the stead or in the place of sinners. That the active and passive obedience of Jesus is a perfect life lived and a perfect death died, not just for His own reputation, but He did it for the betterment of His people. That is an inestimable grace, is it not? The Bible opens up with the idea of an obedient son. You remember in Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve, He gives them a great commission. He tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to cultivate the earth, subdue it. He tells them in Genesis chapter 2, He gives them a command that implies an expectant obedience on the part not just of a creature, not just of one who has been created in the image of God, but as Scripture will go on to tell us, as one who has been created in God's image, signifying one who is in fact the Son of God. Luke chapter 3 verse 37 says, Adam, the huios ha-theos, the Son of God. And so right away we get this concept that is presented to us in the pages of Scripture. God having a unique Son that He is the progenitor of who is expected to obey. And that His obedience is then going to issue forth an either blessing or curse for disobedience. And that is exactly what you see being played out in the pages of Scripture. And then we arrive to yet another example of another Son of God that is given the same ultimatum, if you would. Namely, Israel, the Son of God. Talked about this in Sunday school, so if you're Hearing a broken record at this point, at least you'll appreciate the passion, <laughs> the emphasis I'm placing on it, that Israel, like Adam, was to be an obedient son of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, Israel, the nation, is called God's son, Yahweh's son. He's the Ben Elohim. He is the son of God. But like Adam, as Hosea tells us, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, Israel also transgressed the covenant. 
And so, even though Scripture presents for us the notion of an obedient Son of God upon whom the potential for inestimable blessing is pronounced and also the threat of curse, those early images of a Son of God are quickly ruined by disobedience. Adam sinned. He failed. And as a result, all of his posterity failed in him. In other words, the race that he represented, namely the human race, fell with him. Plunged, as uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, it plunged the whole universe into futility and decay. And then there is a spiritual arms race that issues forth from that. There are those who pitch tents and call upon the name of the Lord, and then there are those who build cities in this present evil age to settle down and to nestle in to this evil world. And so, the course of two humanities begins. There are the children of, there are the, the, the seed of the woman, representative of those who are in the Messiah, and then there is the seed of the serpent, representing all of that aspect of humanity that will rebel against the living God and stand in opposition to the seed of the woman. And that's the way it has always been. But what was never achieved in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter whether you go through the primitive history, the patriarchal history, whether you go through Israel's history, whether you go through the, 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 the priesthood and the temple and, and the prophets and the exiles and Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what you have is the potential for blessing, but never the full realization of the blessings that flow from disobedience, or that, that blow from, flow from obedience, rather. Rather, what you have is the consequences of disobedience. And so, from the very beginning, the Bible sets the stage for what the Bible calls the last Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, it is the last Adam that ushers in the ultimate uh, uh, ideal state of affairs for man. A spiritual life. In other words, it is, it is that even though the first man, Adam, became a living soul, how amazing is that? It's not as amazing as the last Adam becoming what the Bible calls a life-giving spirit. You see, even though the first Adam was a living soul who bore the image of God, the last Adam became a life-giving man, a life-giving spirit. In other words, Jesus became the source of life. In other words, while the first Adam was indicative of condemnation, the last Adam was indicative of redemption. And that is precisely what we are seeing in the book of Hebrews. We are seeing the supremacy of an obedient son. 
and it's not just any sun, <laughs> right? It is the long-awaited, long-anticipated, long-predicted, long-typified Son of God who has finally arrived on the redemptive scene and has lived a perfect life and has died a perfect death so that everyone in this room who trusts in Him can have inestimable, heavenly, eternal blessing. And it's my job to awaken you to that. <laughs> Thus the shouting. Jesus Christ does several things in this text. Number one, fantastic. Jesus speaks in the Old Testament. Uh, look with me again to verse 5 of Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, and it uses the word lego, to speak, right? To say. And then what follows is remarkable because it is a citation of Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. See, the author of Hebrews goes a little bit further than just to say Jesus fulfills the speech of the Old Testament. He goes a little bit further in that he sees or he envisions the incarnate Christ actually speaking the words of Scripture. <laughs> that is remarkable. But that's not unique to chapter 10. I'll remind you, if you go back to chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, that this is not unique to that chapter. He actually says the same thing earlier on in the book. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. The literal Greek just says they are all from ace, one. And then they have to supply some sort of translation, interpretation. And it says, for which reason he, that is the Son, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... And now he is speaking, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And then again, he says, again he speaks. I will put my trust in him. And again, more speech of the incarnate Christ of the Old Testament text. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. It is not just that when we're looking at the Psalms, the prophetic literature, the, the, the passages that are messianically fulfilled in Christ, it is not just that the human author is speaking better than he knows, kind of like Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. It's much more than that, according to the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit himself. 
He is saying it is actually, it is actually the pre-incarnate Christ speaking in the Old Testament. Now, that should not surprise any of you if you know 1 Peter. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Now, this is another aspect. I told you this several times, that the general epistles, which uh, here you're talking about, all the literature that follows Hebrews and after, but a lot of times the general epistles, so Hebrews, Peter, uh, you're talking about John, oh, the, his letters, a lot of times they, they harmonize in a unique way among themselves. It's interesting, but here's one point. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, because what it's saying, I believe, is that in, in the Spirit-wrought Word, Jesus speaks. Look at uh, verse 10. In this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Notice that the human author is not bypassed. They are involved. They are searching. They are inquiring. In other words, uh, it is the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah, Abadiah, Joel, Amos, Hosea. All the prophets are busy at the desk studying, searching, inquiring, doing exegesis, doing theology, trying to search out, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, you see that? What person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's amazing. The pneuma of Christ is predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, that's the prophets, but you. That's remarkable. They knew that this had some sort of future significance, prophetic fulfillment. And these things which you now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now notice the spiritual continuity as we cross the covenantal divide. The same Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, who spoke in the prophets is the same Spirit Verse, the end of verse 12, who was also sent from heaven, who was also uh, empowering those who preached the gospel to you, namely the apostles, into these things which angels long to look, as the angels marvel at the panoramic of God's redemptive purposes in the world. They stand and they marvel. They stand and they marvel. Jesus not only speaks in the Old Testament, but Jesus also fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, this is important. This, of course, is because as Jesus comes as the prototypical psalmist, he's just embodying the psalmist who has a body prepared for his sacrificial obedience, he corresponds to the heavenly realities which give rise to the Old Testament types and shadows in the first place. Now, we talked about some of this in Sunday school. That's why you've got to be at Sunday school so you don't miss this. Let me give you another example of this. This is remarkable. What Hebrews helps us to discern 
is that oftentimes in the typology of the Bible, that means if you read your Old Testament, you find some sort of type of Christ, then you know Christ is going to fulfill that in the New Testament somehow. I I think we all got that, right? There's a two-dimensional typology here. It's very basic. We go from old to the new. But what Hebrews also tells us, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, just to give you an example of this, is that there's also not simply are we looking at a temporal phenomenon as we go from the past to the future, but we also are dealing with a spatial phenomenon, a spatial dimension as we go, listen now, from heaven to earth. And I say that because if you think of Melchizedek, and you're probably thinking, oh boy, we're back to Melchizedek again. (laughs) Three months was not enough. Just look with me at what it says about Melchizedek. Beginning in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, watch this now, but made... Like the Son of God, He remains a priest perpetually. So what I'm saying is this, that in Genesis 14, Melchizedek was typifying the pre-existent Christ who represents the heavenly realities of which Melchizedek then, the historical person, embodies as a historical type that the Bible calls a shadow. So we did this in Sunday school. Imagine in your mind a pyramid, a triangle. If you don't like pyramids, let's use triangles, okay? Triangle where you have one bullet point on top and one at each end at the bottom. At the top is the heavenly reality. At the the bottom left is going to be the historical uh, type of the heavenly reality. And then you cross from past to present, over to the New Testament antitype. In other words, the fulfillment. What happens is, is that as we move from the past, Old Testament, to the present, New Testament, in fulfilling that type, what Jesus is doing as this Melchizedekian figure is that he is actually bringing heaven down to his work. So that what you have is not simply Jesus relating to a historical person, but Jesus relating to a heavenly reality that the historical person was trying to embody in shadow form. Melchizedek, because he had an untraceable genealogy, was actually ordained by God to be a figure, if you would, of the pre-existent Christ. Thus he is called the Son of God. He was like the Son of God. And Jesus Christ embodies not just the historical type, but the heavenly reality of what the pre-existent Christ is, who is the Son of God. That's the way the typology works in the Bible. And that's what's going on here. 
That you can see this over and over and over in the book of Hebrews. You see that in the Levitical priesthood. As the priests, according to chapter 8, if you turn there, chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, they are giving priests and or gifts, excuse me, and they're giving sacrifices, all of which are analogous or they're typological of a heavenly reality which Christ fulfills on earth. So time and again, time and again, the book of Hebrews is taking us from heaven to earth to a future time on earth that corresponds to the original heavenly pattern. This is why I said at Sunday school, the book of Hebrews is transporting us to another world. And when Christ came, the heavenly world broke into our world. And every sound theologian that I know of taught this. From George Eldon Ladd to G.K. Beale to John Calvin to Jonathan Edwards and his typology to all of the, the, the different biblical theologians that are out there, whether you're talking about Edmund Clowney or whether you're talking about uh, Graham Goldsworthy, you're talking about these theologians that are seeing this Gerhardus Voss probably being the most foundational in terms of actually putting this all together. Matter of fact, I recommend for your reading, I recommend a little tiny book. So don't be threatened. This is big stuff, but little book. You ready? It's called The Teaching of the Epistle to the Hebrews. You don't own that. You ought to own that if you want to get serious about the theology of the book of Hebrews. But there's more. The Old Testament sacrifices call for the sufficiency of the Son of God. Why? Because just, just, just look back at 10.4. In verse 4, we're, this sets up the whole argument. For it is impossible. That's a big dilemma. How do we resolve that exegetical dilemma? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is the problem. Verse 5, therefore, is the answer. That's why the author says, therefore... When therefore is there, you always need to know why is therefore therefore. It is therefore the purpose of answering how that dilemma is overcome in Christ. How are sins going to be forgiven? But then he gives us, he gives us this psalm, Psalm 40. Now look at what it says here. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. A body you have, you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Remember that Hebrews is saying Christ is speaking here. This is Christ speaking Several things should come into play. When we're talking about the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices to take away sin, what are we talking about? But three, three things I want to point out here. Number one, God's displeasure with Israel's apostate religion. Uh, that, that is absolutely uh, true. And as I was reading this, I thought, boy, this is a whole other sermon because of some of the things that it it brought to bear. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Amos. I'll give you a little time to go to the book of Amos, the minor prophets. I think it's Hosea, then Amos. Um, Amos chapter 5. This is kind of a classic text on this, 
But uh, already in the Old Covenant, you had the psalmist David talking about the displeasure of God with Israel's apostate religion because it was perfunctory. I love that word. (laughs) Perfunctory means that it is fake. It is superficial. It is uh, devoid of reality or substance. Uh, Let's make it real easy. It is as if when Jesus says in Matthew 15, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is perfunctory worship. The hands are raised. The mouth is praising, but the heart is dead. And what's amazing to me as I look at this is that apostate worship happened all the time. Apostates are willing to worship. Isn't that terrifying? Amos chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, he says. Wow, strong language. Amos 5, 21. I hate wouldn't make it to Fox News, too politically incorrect. I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Look at that. The assemblies were solemn. They were religious. They were externally, seemingly spiritual. They had the right lighting. They had the right mood of worship. They had just the right music going. They had just the right external activities happening programs in the church, just to bring it into our common vernacular. They had all the external performances. The atmosphere was set. It was solemn. It was an assembly. But, he says, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs." I wonder how those songs were sang by false Jews. Because Romans chapter 2 tells you what a real Jew is. A real Jew is someone who is one inwardly of the heart, not externally of the race. A true Jew is someone who is a true Jew inwardly. Someone that has a circumcised heart. And he says... Take these songs away. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Oh, the beautiful, beautiful music that apostate Israel was making. They could cut a worship album, probably Sony quality, and completely devoid of God. That should, that should send a warning to us that we better not be so impressed just because a worship band on YouTube has a million followers and they make incredibly uh, uh, complex, ingenious music, but then when you see what they're all about on Facebook and who they're following and how they're dressing and how they're acting and what they're believing and how they're compromising, that we do not become disillusioned, that we do not become impressed with this delusion of grandeur that because they have a synthesizer going, that somehow that means spiritual revival. It does not. I tell you, I've called for this on several occasions. Boy, I've called like, who am I, right? If there was a Wittenberg door to the worship industry, I would go nail something on it. 
and it would be something like this. Start putting your doctrinal positions on your album. Start giving us some affirmations and denials doctrinally and stop trying to impress us with your talent. Right? I'm in trouble enough, so I'll move on. Here come the emails. Here come the Facebook comments. Thank goodness I'm not on social media. <laughs> Robert will have to deal with the heat of all that. Secondly, then, it's not just God's displeasure with Israel, but God designed a better sacrifice because look at what the text says. He says, a body you have prepared for me, uh, Hebrews 10, 5. But this is remarkable because, of course, if you turn in your Bible, as I've turned in my Bible, back to uh, Psalm 40, verse 6, you have quite a different translation there, do you not? There, what you have in the original Hebrew is something like this. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Huh? What happened to the body prepared for me? Well, the author of Hebrews here is deviating from the Hebrew text, and he's following instead the Septuagint. And the reason why he does that is because He's picking up that the Septuagint scholars were correct to discern that the ear is merely representative of the body. In other words, this is a case of synecdoche, where a part is representing the whole. And it fits better the purpose, the theological purpose of the author of Hebrews to say that what is contained in the psalm is not simply just an ear that God is carving out. <laughs> I mean, just the simplicity, the basic Sunday school level, you know, uh, imagery of God carving out an ear, opening up an ear. Literally, the Hebrew word literally means ears you have dug. <laughs> and I think I made a little note here. Maybe we can talk about this later. But I read something here that maybe here we have a little bit of a ademic theme rising back up as God is making another man, as it were, out of the dust. He's carving out another human, another Adam, as it were, preparing another body for obedience. And that is what the ear is for in Jewish tradition. This psalm was interpreted to mean that the ears were the entry point for the Torah, for the law of God to come into the soul, into the whole person, and that the whole person, the body, the soul, the mind, the heart, everything, the power, the strength, the breath of a man is to be used in the obedience of Yahweh. But here's the point. Who can find such a man? David is not that man. No, we know David is not that man. Murderer, adulterer, liar, conniver, schemer. He is not that man. Though he was a man after God's own heart, he is not that man. And so Jesus is saying this is speech that ultimately only the Son of God can fully speak in truth. That it is my body that is being prepared by God for a supreme act of obedience on behalf of God's people. 
The third thing is that God delights in the obedience of His Son. Oh, He takes pleasure in His Son. And one of the reasons why I put my manuscript on the website is for you to go there and to see the many, 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 many Bible passages that I don't get to cite while I'm up here because I'll be out of time. I'll preach like Joseph Urban and you'll get mad at me. Oh, by the way, when he comes here in October, he's not preaching for an hour and a half, trust me. That was something, though. <laughs> anyway, I hope he doesn't see this. I love you, Joseph. I told you, my stomach sank. They told me, I asked, how long do I preach in Mexico? They said, if you don't preach an hour and a half, they'll be, they'll be upset. I said, what? My first message, I designed it to be 30 to 40 minutes. I'm like, I'm doomed. <laughs> I better start telling stories. God's delight in the obedience of His Son. The Son of God saw the totality of His duty before God as He gazed into the Scriptures themselves. Look with me in the Bible to Luke chapter 24, please. This is a passage that is uh, actually what we base our entire Emmaus conference on. It is the road to Emmaus text but uh, Jesus knew what was set in front of him in the Word of God. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, as he finds the men, the road to Emmaus, they're discouraged, they're, they're condemned, they're hopeless. Why? Because they did not understand the Scripture. So Jesus says, Oh, foolish men, verse 25, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Now, question for you. When I tell you all the prophets, who do you think of? I know who I thought of. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, right? Not alone, right? I'm not alone. Good. And then it says here, then beginning with Moses... <laughs> what happened to the prophets, man? <laughs> oh, you mean there's more? Yeah, it's all of it. It's not just a couple prophetic books. Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. Watch this now, if it weren't any clearer, in all of the scriptures. This is incredible. And, 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 and I, have, I have summarized that it would probably take these men to walk with Jesus on the Emmaus Road all the way to Jerusalem from where they were. It probably took them several hours as they talked in-depth theology on a long road journey. And so can you fathom, you think I'm long-winded, you think Joseph is long-winded, you have Jesus Christ, listen to this now, perfect hermeneutics, perfect inspiration, perfect interpretation, perfect unction from the Spirit of God, exegeting the Word of God, perfect grammar, perfect syntax, perfect theology for hours. And do you wonder why these men were set ablaze? Because they were glowing in the light of Jesus' spiritual unction as He taught the Word of God. Oh, I can't even imagine the risen, exalted Christ 
exegeting the Bible to me. Oh, just lock me in the room. Put me away. Forget all about me. Throw away the key. Just let me sit next to his fire so I can burn in my heart. And the the beauty is that we can partake of this ourselves if you learn to do Christ-centered biblical theology the way that Jesus did. You too, me too, we too can burn because of the illumination of what's going on there. Finally, Jesus Christ, not only does He not only does he speak in, this, in the Old Testament Scriptures, not only does he fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures, but finally, Jesus Christ abolishes the sacrifices of the Old Covenant contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. And this is remarkable because he's giving us the purpose for which he does this. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Verse 9, because that's where everyone was staking their authority, staking their argument, staking their misunderstanding of God's covenantal dealings with man in the law. That's why he throws that parenthetical idea in there. Verse 9, And then he said, again, Jesus still talking. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. When he says that, he says here, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. And that is speaking about old covenant, new covenant. There's a moving along. There is a covenantal upheaval in the redemptive history of God where the new is surpassing and replacing the old, and we can go on and on. By the way, isn't it amazing? Uh, here, just this short little example here of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. They are the commentary on verses 5 through 6, 5 through 7. He's saying, yeah, when he says this, this is what it means. When he says this, this is what it means. This is a perfect illustration of what the Reformers called the analogy of the faith, Scripture interpreting Scripture. Furthermore, let me give you this, because I think what God did here is that he's focusing everything here now on the cleansing power of Jesus' blood to make a people clean, to redeem a holy people for a holy purpose, and ultimately to bring them into a holy realm with him. That's why it says in verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering, uh, uh, the offering of the body That corresponds back to the body he's preparing by the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And what's remarkable here is that what we have is basically bookends. Uh, Look with me back at Hebrews chapter 9 to show you, just to show you what's gone on. Beginning there in verse 28, it says then Christ. Christ also having been offered right? Once to bear the sins of many. And then that, which has more of an eschatological focus as we are eagerly awaiting him, that bookend is found in chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So Christ, 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 Christ. The offering of Christ leading to eschatological hope. The offering of Christ leading to the sanctification of the new covenant people of God. That's what the author is saying. If there's a commentary that I could give you on this, it's this. 
Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me quickly because remember that the whole purpose of this is to move us to a place where we can be holy, we can be consecrated, we can have what Hebrews 10.2 says, the consciousness of sins removed. The consciousness of sins removed. And um, this is why Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 are really the perfect commentary on this whole section of the book of Hebrews. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you struggle with encouragement? Do you, or maybe another way to phrase it, do you struggle with discouragement? Do you struggle with being gloomy and down and self-condemning and self-loathing and self-introspective to an unhealthy degree where you cannot rise above the darkness of the clouds of depression and self-loathing? There is a sense, of course, as the Puritans were uh, 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 very, very well known for. There is a sense in which self-loathing is good for us. We need to get in touch with that aspect of ourselves that we can say, oh God, I am nothing. I am a worm. I am, I am sin. I am, I am ugly in your sight. Without your grace, there we all go. Romans chapter 3, everyone has become worthless, useless in the sight of God. But, When we look at the gospel, we must also ascend to the hill, to the mountaintop that penetrates the clouds and stand on the pinnacle of victory with Christ so that we are able to say, There is now no condemnation. You will not bear the wrath of God, my dear friend, if you are trusting in Jesus. So that the day of judgment is not the day that God decides whether to cast you into hell or allow you to enter heaven. The day of judgment is not the day that that will be decided. That was decided the day that Jesus died on the cross in your behalf, in your stead, as your vicarious atoning sacrifice. So that now if you trust, if you have faith, You mean all I got to do is just believe in this? Have you ever had somebody tell you that, witnessing, right? You mean all I do is just believe it? Oh, so I can live like the devil and just at the very end just kind of believe it? Oftentimes what I tell people at that point is, look, if you're facetious in my presence, you don't think God can see right through you? Of course you must have a genuine repentance. You must have genuine saving faith. You cannot have false faith, fake faith. You cannot have fideistic faith. You cannot have blind faith. You have to believe in the truths of the gospel, the facts of the gospel, and you must trust in the gospel. Genuine saving faith. Yes, we are saying as Christians that genuine saving faith results in the vilest offender going free and being clean and no longer having the consciousness of sins, which means in the book of Hebrews more than just that you feel guilty about what you've done. It's not about feeling guilty. It's about knowing that you are guilty before a holy God. And yet, 
in your unjustified state. Oh, this, is what, this is what the new covenant is all about. Watch this now. Go, going forward, if I can, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that's perfectly in step with what the author of Hebrews is saying. Weak as it was through the flesh because of man's disobedience, God did, sending His own Son, a body He prepared for Him in the likeness of sinful flesh, that just means in humanity, and as an offering, just like Hebrews, for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law, and oh, in Jeremiah, or rather Ezekiel, in, excuse me, in Isaiah, boy, I've got my, got my prophets all messed up. In Isaiah, um, it speaks about God's law being great and glorious, full of greatness because it reflects the lawgiver, full of glory because it is just an emanation of His moral perfections. And that is what hung over us outside of Christ, but inside of Christ where we arrive at the sphere of the Spirit. Guess what? We're no longer condemned. The right, requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because we don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And so practically speaking, the Apostle Paul takes the offering of Jesus, the act of obedience, passive obedience, perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He takes all of that. Here we go, points of application. And where does it go? What does it result in? Because if it doesn't result in the same thing, if you don't reach the same conclusion that Paul reached in light of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ, then you know you're out of step with what God wants you to conclude with. And what God wants us to conclude with is an unfounded boldness. He wants us to conclude with an unfounded liberty. We are free to enter in through a new and, and living way into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. What is that all talking about? We have access. We have communion. We can pray. We can commune. We can study. We can bear our hearts to the living God and walk out of the prayer meeting uncondemned because of the Spirit of God and because of the triumphant sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Father, we confess openly now before you that all of us here at various points and at various times, we live, as it were, back in the shadows of an old order that you have replaced and surpassed with a new and living way, with a better covenant that is built on better promises. Forgive us. 
For you did not give us the substance, the presence. You did not give us the image of the Son of God, which means His essence that fulfills the shadows so that we would go back and live under the shadows again. Oh God, free us to live in light of the glorious new covenant realities in which we stand. And that may be a lifelong journey for us to learn how to live by the power of sovereign grace. Oh, Lord, would you do that work in us? Would you encourage, based on these things, oh, God, and forgive me for making this unclear when it is much clearer than what I've made it, and make it crystal clear to the downcast among us. Make it crystal clear with those members among us that go home and struggle in ways that just can't even share with people because of the shame or the, the self-loathing and the depression and the condemnation that it heaps upon them. God, it pains me to know that one of your children in our church could live back under the condemnation of the law when you have set them free in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Do a mighty work, we pray in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.